The book of Hebrews was written to first century Jewish Christians who were under tremendous pressure in their society and in their families and amongst their communities to turn back from their faith and their profession of Christ and to go into, again, Judaism and the rituals and laws of Moses that they had uh, come out of upon their confession of Christ. And so there was a tremendous persecution of them because of their faith in Christ and also the pressure to then return. And some of the Jewish Christians in the first century were giving heed to that pressure and were beginning to turn back. They were forsaking their confidence in Christ and getting back into the rituals of the law. Now, the gospel, the gospel of grace that was given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a salvation that comes exclusively by faith in what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. It's faith in Christ alone that causes a person to be saved. That's the gospel of our salvation. And what that means is that for me to be saved, the full weight of my trust is upon him and upon his cross as my righteousness. And so for me to blend that faith and my trust in what he did on my behalf, to blend that with an effort that I would add to that, some work that I might do or something that I might do to try to help God save me, my behavior or my uh, performance of rituals or my boasting of, uh, of things that I've done or, or my good deeds. If I try to add anything to what Jesus has already done, what I've done is I've compromised the gospel of grace within my life. I'm no longer standing for my salvation upon what Jesus did and, and upon what Jesus did alone, but now I'm standing upon what Jesus did and something else. And anytime there's a what Jesus did and something else, I've come into dangerous ground because I'm forsaking the confidence and the faith that I've professed that my salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. So to blend faith with my works is to uh, mean the absence of faith. And so how that applies to you and I in today's world, it's when we say that we believe in Jesus, it's my profession, but yet just in case that's not enough, I'm also going to make sure that I, and then you can fill in the blank and say anything you want, like go to church on a regular basis, uh, read at least five minutes of Bible every day, make sure that I pray at least some, some words of prayer each day. Anything that you would put on the other side of that in the heart of a just-in-case, you've compromised the gospel of grace. You're no longer standing upon what Jesus did alone but now you're putting confidence in something that you must do in order to be saved. And that's a dangerous place to be. And that's who the author of Hebrews is writing to. Those that are tempted to add something to what Jesus did for them and specifically to these Jewish Christians who are going back under the Mosaic Code. Now, Hebrews was written to remind these people that it's faith in Jesus alone that saves a person. And so the book, the book of Hebrews, consists of successive, taking successive parts of Judaism and then holding them up in the light against the person of Christ and showing how the person of Christ completely super exceeds anything that the Old Covenant or the Old Testament or the Mosaic system put forward. 
And, and the point of doing that is to show that there's absolutely no benefit at all in adding any of the Old Testament customs, rituals, works to what Jesus has done for us because he is far superior to those things. And so thus far, he has shown how Jesus is superior to the prophets. Highly important, highly respected, but Jesus is superior to the prophets. They gave a part, he gives the whole. Jesus also, secondarily, superior to angels. Angels had a large part and still do in the world today in, in, in administering things for the kingdom of God. But compared to Jesus, they hold nothing. They are messengers. He is God. And so Jesus far superior. Last week in chapter 3, we saw how Jesus is superior to Moses. Yes, he was important. He brought to them the covenant of the law. He led the people out of Egypt. He was the greatest apostle that Judaism could ever know. But he wasn't the author of Judaism. He was a servant in the house. He wasn't God the Son. He wasn't the mediator of the new covenant. And so Jesus far exceeds the glory, even that of Moses. Now, chapters 3 and 4 of which we're kind of right in the middle of as we begin chapter 4, really belong together. And here's why. Because the ministry of Moses, who was the topic of chapter 3, was to bring the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That was his ministry. God sent him to bring them out from under the bondage of Pharaoh that they might then be set free. But Moses couldn't take them any further than that. He brought them out of Egypt, but it was the ministry of Joshua, whose ministry was an extension of Moses' ministry. His purpose then was to bring the children of Israel into the land that God had promised to his people through Abraham all those years previously. So Moses brought them out of Egypt, but that's as far as he took them. And then Joshua brought the people into the promised land that they might then inherit what God had promised to them through Abraham and notice that it was absolutely a promise. Now, that entire um, movement, the coming out of Egypt and then the going into the promised land, literally happened. It's history. But at the same time that that historically literally happened, in doing that, what God was doing is that he was painting a physical picture of a spiritual salvation. The people of God in Egypt were enslaved under a worldly system while they were there. They were baking bricks for the Pharaoh. They were in bondage. It was slavery. It wasn't the place that they were supposed to be. So God raised up a deliverer and he brought the children of Israel out of that slavery, that bondage, through the Red Sea and he saved them from that slavery in Egypt miraculously. He did the work. He opened up the Red Sea. He brought the plagues upon Egypt. He made all the circumstances work together in order for them to come out. It was God's salvation. He brought them out of Egypt. And then they went into the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness for the purpose of being tested, for the purpose of being refined and purified, for the purpose of being taught the things of God and given the law that they might know what it is that's required of uh, of uh, of them from God, and, and they were brought there to be humbled. All of those reasons God had them in this wilderness experience that was for a season, for a period of time. 
But something happened while they were in the wilderness. First of all, you have the children of Israel who were faithless. They had the ultimatum to go into the promised land just two years after coming out of Egypt. But they didn't believe that God was going to give them victory when they were outnumbered and ill-equipped. And so out of fearfulness, they disobeyed God's command to go into the land and they stayed in the wilderness. And because of that, God said, now two years is going to become 40 years. And I'm going to wait until this entire faithless generation dies off. And then I'm going to bring the children of Israel, the next generation, into the promised land, those that will believe and those that will have faith. And so that first generation came out, but they never made it in because of their unbelief. Now, another thing happened during that time that they were in the wilderness, and that is this, is that towards the end of that stint, Moses, who had been their faithful leader all along, lost patience for just one brief moment with the people. They were complaining for like the 10th time. And he got sick of the whining and the murmuring. And they said, we have no water and we're going to die of thirst here in this wilderness. And so Moses, what he did is he went up on this rock that had brought them water in times past. And, And God had said to Moses in times past, he said, Moses, strike the rock with your staff and water will flow out from the rock for the people. And so Moses did that. He struck the rock in times past and water came out for the people. But this time, when Moses stood before the people, God said, Moses, I want you to only speak to the rock and the water's gonna come out for the people. But Moses got angry and he misrepresented the heart of God by showing anger to the people and he struck the rock the second time. And in so doing, he ruined a picture that God was seeking to paint. Because the Bible tells us that that rock was a picture of Christ. And that the water, though it was physical, is the spiritual satisfaction that a person gets when Christ comes into their life. That he is the water. He gives the water. He provides the water. And Christ was stricken once so that the water could be released. And now... The rock only needs to be spoken to. Jesus said, whatsoever you ask in my name, that will be given to you. And so water isn't released now when Christ is crucified a second time, stricken again, but rather when he's approached with boldness and with confidence and spoken to. And Moses ruined the picture, but here's what happened to Moses. God said, Moses, oh, by the way, water came out. Even though though Moses got angry, God still brought water to the people, but God said, Moses into the woodshed. And God said, Moses, I told you to speak to the rock and you misrepresented me and the people. You made them think that I was angry and I wasn't angry with them even though they're whiners. And here's the penalty, Moses. You are not going to bring the people into the promised land, but rather someone else is going to do it. And Moses was heartbroken over this. He pleaded with God to change his mind. But God said, no, I've made up my mind. Don't talk to me about this anymore. I'll show it to you. You can see it, but you will not go into it because you misrepresented me. You say, why in the world would God, who was not angry with his people for complaining a hundred times, yet he doesn't let Moses go into the promised land because of one mistake that Moses made? Here's why. 
because Moses in the Bible is a picture of the law. In the New Testament, Moses and law are synonymous terms. Jesus would say, have you not read in Moses? Other times he would say, have you not read in the law? Moses represented the law because it was through Moses that the law was brought to the people. And here's the point. Here's why Moses could not go into the promised land. Because the law requires that if you will be saved or if you will experience the promises of God through the keeping of laws and commands, that you must be perfect and never stumble even once. For if you keep the whole law, the Bible says, and yet stumble in one point, you are guilty of breaking all of it. And the law, though it is effective in bringing us out of slavery because we see God's standard and realize that we don't measure up, the law can never bring us into the promises of God or the rest of God. It is absolutely impossible. You say, well, who then did bring the children of Israel into the promised land if Moses didn't? The answer, Joshua. Did you know that Joshua is the Hebrew name for the Greek name that is Jesus, Yeshua? Moses brought them out but couldn't bring them in. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, a picture of our Savior, he brought them in. And it was all completely by grace, not by anything that the people had done or anything that Joshua had done. It was all because of God's promise. The law is effective in bringing you and I out of slavery in the world, but it cannot bring us in to the salvation of God. Only Jesus can bring us in to the salvation of God. That is the picture that was being painted by God through the ministry in the, in, uh, of Moses and also of Joshua. Now, in Psalm chapter 95, which was paramount in our study last week as we looked at uh, the, the warning that's given to the people to trust in Christ alone and not to go back to Moses or to the law. In Psalm 95, the psalmist calls, and this is important, the promised land rest. He says, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, that God said, I swore in my wrath that they, the children of Israel, will not enter my rest. That is the 40 years, the generation that didn't believe. So the Holy Spirit links the promised land to this rest in Psalm chapter 95. And what Hebrews chapter 4 now holds before us is that Jesus Christ is not only superior to Moses and Joshua of the Old Testament who brought the people in, but that the rest that Jesus gives to the one who puts their faith in him is superior to the rest that was experienced in the Old Testament under that system. That we experience a superior rest than that of the old. And so that's the theme of chapter 4 as we now get into it. Notice with me in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. The writer says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So let's take that verse piece by piece. 
He says, first of all, let us therefore fear. The exhortation is to you and I. It's not to them that failed to enter in the first time. It's to you and I that are sitting here tonight. And what he does is he links the warning that was given at the end of chapter 3 about them not entering the promised land to you and I in the potential or the possibility that we might come short of coming into the rest of God provided by Christ. Notice the word lest there right after the word fear, the fifth word in the verse. He says, let us therefore fear lest. The word lest implies possibility. So in other words, let us therefore take heed because of the possibility that a promise that is left to us, that's you and me, of entering into this rest that any of us should seem to come short of it. The word short of it means that we would be accounted unworthy or that we would come short, accounted uh, lacking, that we wouldn't measure up to it in some way. And so what the writer is giving us here is a warning. He's saying, take heed that this doesn't happen to you as it happened to them. And then he explains beginning in verse two. He says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Now, what do you mean? The gospel or the word gospel means good news. And he says that the gospel was preached unto us. Well, what's the gospel that was preached unto us? The gospel is that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that God disrobed himself of his glory came and lived among us, clothed himself in humility, lived a perfect life, fulfilling every requirement that God set forth in the law that needed to be fulfilled. And then yet he died a sinner's death at the hands of his creation on a cross, absorbing in his body on the cross all of the wrath of God that the sins of the world had rightfully deserved, but they were placed upon him. And he died on that cross bearing the weight of God's wrath. But because he was sinless, he didn't stay dead, but rather three days later, he rose again because where there is no sin, there can be no death. And because he was innocent, though he paid the price of sin and dying, he couldn't stay dead and he rose back to life again. And the declaration now, the good news that he has sent us into the world to proclaim, the gospel is that if we would put our faith and trust in him, he would be willing to take upon himself all of the sins that we've committed, past, present, and future, and that he is willing to gift us freely the life, the eternal life and the salvation that he purchased with his perfect life. In other words, he's willing to trade his perfection for my sin if I'm willing to put my faith in that transaction. So any person that will come to God and say, God, I recognize that my sin is part of what put Christ on the cross. And I am willing that my sin would be placed upon him. And I am willing to receive the gift of salvation that he purchased by living a righteous life. And if you would give that to me, I'm willing to receive it, leave my sins and be one with Jesus Christ. And any person that will believe that, that Jesus did it, and then receive it, can be saved. That's the gospel. And so the gospel was preached. Tonight, the gospel was preached unto you. If you've never heard that before, put like that, that is the gospel. That's the good news. That God so loved you that he is willing tonight 
to put every sin of your life on his son Jesus and to put the status of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus upon your life free of charge. The price is do you believe it and will you receive it? That's the gospel. And so the gospel was preached unto us. He says, as it was also preached unto them. What do you mean? What do you mean the gospel was preached unto them? Well, good news was brought to them that there is a salvation that our God provides through a Passover lamb. And through that Passover lamb, you can be brought out of slavery in Egypt. And now through faith in the promises of God, you can be brought into the land of promise, free of charge, because of nothing that you have done, but just believe it and go and grab it, receive it, take it, it's yours. The gospel was preached unto them. That's what the, the, the writer says here. However, he says, the word preached did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now they received the word of the gospel, but they didn't receive the benefit of the gospel because they didn't believe. They said, no, we're too small. We're like grasshoppers before the giants in that promised land. We're outnumbered. They're a multitude and we are a few. We're ill-equipped. They have weapons of war and chariots of iron, and we have nothing. We don't have stand a chance if we go in and fight them. God said, I'll give them into your hand. Don't worry, just go in and take it. I've already done it. The battle is won. But they said, no, we can't. We're too small. And they were too fearful to take God at his word. And fear took the place of faith, and thus they didn't enjoy what God had prepared for them. It wasn't mixed with faith. And any time the gospel or the word isn't mixed with faith, then we lose out on what God intended to give to us through it. So the word preached did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we, he says in verse 3, which have believed, do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so he begins now talking about this rest that's been provided for them. He doesn't tell us yet what that rest is per se. He just tells us that it is given to us as a result of faith. We can have this rest. He's going to tell us what it is. He doesn't yet, but we can have it as a result of our faith. And that's true in the Old Testament, and it's also true in the New Testament. Now, concerning this rest, we learn a few things in the next few verses. We learn, first of all, that this rest was provided and paid for from the foundation of the world. Notice at the end of verse three, he says that the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And here's why, verse four. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Now, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, way back when God created the earth. It says there this, it says, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he has made. Now, if you've been in the Bible for any length of time, you know that when you see the word all, what does it mean? It means all. 
it always means all. There is never a but attached to the all. If God says all, it means all, which means this, that everything that God worked, created, made, was created and made and done, completed in those seven days. And that the actualization of all of the things that had yet to appear just needed to unfold in time. Meaning this, that the cross was already finished in the mind and in the hand of God on the seventh day of creation when God rested. It was already done. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here. It says the works were finished from the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it talks about those that will take the mark of the beast during the tribulation in the very last days of, of, of humanity upon the earth. And it says there, uh, these words, it says that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, that is the devil, whose names are not written in the book of the life or the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you see that? That the Bible tells us that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. It was already done in the mind of God. The works were finished. Salvation was paid for right at the beginning. And so the rest that he's talking about here, this great salvation, was provided and paid for before any of us even came into existence. It was done. It was already completed. And then he says in verse 6, he ties it into the present. He says, seeing therefore, it remains that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached, the children of Israel in the wilderness, entered not in because of unbelief. And then again, verse 7, he limiteth or marks out or sets aside a certain day saying in David. Now pay attention to that. Pay attention that it's David that says this. Today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now again, quoting from Psalm 95, the same Psalm we looked at last week and in chapter three of Hebrews, written by the mouth of David. And here's why that's significant and why the writer is still talking about it. Notice verse eight. He says, for if Jesus, and that Jesus, that's King James, it's Joshua. Remember, Joshua, Jesus is the Greek Translation of Joshua. He's not talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about Joshua in the Old Testament. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, the children of Israel, then would he, that is David or the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David, not afterward have spoken of another day. Here's the point. I know it's confusing a little bit, but it's really not. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if the rest of God if the rest that God intended his people to have was experienced when the children of Israel went into the promised land, then there would be no need for David who came several hundred years after Joshua to speak of the rest as something that was yet future. Meaning that the rest of God in the Old Testament was not the rest of God that God intended his people to have. For if Joshua had given them that rest, then the Holy Spirit would not afterwards have spoken of another day. So what does that leave us at the bottom line of this equation that we've sifted through in these first eight verses? The answer is in verse nine. 
there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. At the bottom line, what is left over after all the calculations is that there is a rest that is still available for the people of God. And it is that rest that the writer is holding up before us and saying, this is the prize that was accomplished by Christ that super exceeds anything else that can be experienced in any other way under any other form of God. Now, the word, and I want you to to pay attention to this. If you look in your Bible at verse nine, you see the word rest there? It's a different word that's used there in the Greek language than any of the other times in this chapter that the word is used. The word is used eight times in 11 verses in this chapter, the word rest. But this particular time, it's a different Greek word. Do you know what it is here? It's the word Sabbath, or the word that translates into Sabbath in the Hebrew. The Sabbath, or the keeping of the seventh, or the rest, when God rested the seventh day, sanctified it, he made it his Sabbath, meaning his rest. The word Sabbath means rest. And the reason that's important is this, is because from time to time, you and I will get the question as Christians, what is the Sabbath that we're to keep? Is it Saturday or is it Sunday? The Jews worshiped on Saturday. We worship as the church by and large, for the most part, on Sunday. And the Bible says that we're to keep the Sabbath. God said that I will not hold him guiltless who breaks my Sabbath. And, and, and Christians will say, well, though we're not under the law, God said that the Sabbath is an everlasting statute. So when do we keep the Sabbath? Do we keep it on Saturday? Do we keep it on Sunday? The answer is yes. And here's why. And here's the answer, because from time to time, you're going to get that question. Here's why. Because the Sabbath, what it represented was not a day, one in seven, that they were to keep. The Sabbath, in its truest sense, is a position that we hold. It's a place where we abide. If we are in Christ, then we are in rest. We are in Sabbath. Therefore, to be in Christ is to be in a perpetual fulfillment of the Sabbath. You and I have a Sabbath rest. That's what we have. That's what he goes on to say now in verse 10. He says, for he that is entered into his rest or his Sabbath. Do you notice that the Sabbath is not something that we keep or do? It's something that we enter into. And once we enter into it, we are in a perpetual state of keeping it. Meaning that if you're in Christ here tonight, you're in compliance of keeping the Sabbath. Now, it is still wise to take one day in seven when you do no work and where you just let your batteries recharge and where you give attention to the things of God and where you focus in on him. It's also wise to not forsake the gathering of yourselves together to get together for church and Bible study and for fellowship. Those are things that are important, though they are not legally required of us to do. The Sabbath is fulfilled in the person of Christ. And if we're in him, we're in Sabbath. He that has entered uh, into his rest, and now here's what that rest is. Are you ready for it? It's glorious. He also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. He that has entered into his rest has ceased or stopped his own works as God did from his. Meaning this, is that no longer is the confidence of my salvation in Jesus 
and something that I do. But my confidence for salvation is in Jesus and what he has done exclusively, adding nothing to it. And if I've entered into that rest, the way that I know that I've entered into that rest is because I have ceased seeking to please God or attain favor from God or to pay back my salvation with something that I then can add to it in some way. I'm resting in the fact that Jesus paid it all and that my salvation stands complete in him and because of him. That's what it means to be in the rest of God, uh, to, to be ceased from it. When I first got saved, and this is going back about 17 years now at this point, when I first got saved, I understood what this meant in an intellectual way. I understood the gospel. All of us do. We, we hear it. We don't understand it perfectly. We don't know the fine print. But we, we accept Christ, we receive the gift of salvation, and we know that it isn't, isn't anything of us. We know that intellectually. That's what happened, and that was me. But inwardly, in my heart, when, in, in those early days and in the early years of my salvation, I had this underlying feeling that there were some expectations that were attached to it, even though the fine print said, uh, done that there's something I have to do. I, I'd remembered that uh, a few years ago, I had gone to a concert with a, a couple of friends and um, it, was, uh, uh, it, was, um, it was a bad concert. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of things happening there and a lot of new agey type of um, things going on. And I remember we were sitting in the car at one point while we were waiting outside and there was these guys that um, were kind of groupies. They followed along with the, the band as they went and they were selling these books and they were books about um, you know, Buddhism and about uh, higher powers and spiritism and all this kind of stuff. And they came to the window of the car and they said, hey, we want you guys to just have these books because we, um, we, we feel like this is important information. So they gave us books you know, and we, so I took these three books and I was like, hey, thanks. And then the guy said to me, he goes, and you know, and we, uh, you know, we, we live out here on the road. We, we, this is kind of our, our thing that we do. And, you know, so any support or anything that, uh, that you want to give to us, we would be glad to, to, to take that from you, you know? And I was like, well, I don't have any cash, but I really appreciate the books. And he, he stood there for a minute and then he said, well, you've got to give me back those books then. <laughs> He's like, I can't give you the books. I said, well, he told me they were free. He's like, you know, and so I gave him back the books. I really didn't have any money to give him. You know, I took him at face value. But, but sometimes we come into this salvation and we know it's a free gift that there's nothing that we can add to it. But underneath of that, we think, well, yes, but there are some expectations. There are some things that I need to bring to the table. If, if, if he's going to give me this salvation, then, then he must expect that I'm going to clean up my life a little bit. And if I expect God's favor in my life, then I better clean up my life a little bit. And so as an early Christian, I would read the testimony of uh, people that were, 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 were greatly blessed of God, favored of God, used of God. There were other people in my life, pastors and people that had been in the faith before me that I looked up to them and I saw God's work in their life. And I began to pattern my life after the things that they were doing in hopes that the result of the blessing that was in their life would also then come into my life. And so I would pray and read and do and serve the way that I would see or think that I was supposed to do, all of these things, expecting that the blessing of God was going to come on the other side of those things. And so I would do that. But the problem is this, that I wasn't strong enough at that time to be able to do those things without 
having the other things of my old life that were still trying to die off pollute those things. So I was struggling. That's what we call struggling, wrestling with sin, trying to get victory over the old man and over the old life. So on good days, I would do it. I would pray, I would read, I would serve, I would do whatever. But on bad days, when I wasn't doing so good, I would feel, well, I can't pray. I can't read. If I go to church, I'll go there because I'm supposed to go, but I'm just going to sit quietly in the back and not expect to receive anything from God because I, I'm just my life isn't in a place where it's supposed to be. I can't, can't do those things. And then my mentality was, well, since I can't be as good as I'm supposed to be, then I'll just make up for that by, by doing what I can when I can. So what I can do is I can read, I can memorize, I can do all these things. And so I'm going to do that. And so I'm going to read when I can, I'll pray when I can, I'll memorize scripture, I'll share a lot with people, I'll serve, you know, in times of strength, I'll double down, I'll do more, I'll make promises, I'll fast a day of the week, which I would do. I'll fast a week or a couple weeks out of the year, which I would do. I would pray all night at certain times, do these things thinking this is what God expects of me. He's given me a free gift of salvation, but this is what God expects of me. But what my life was at that time, it was nothing but a roller coaster. It was highs and then lows. I would be, when I was doing good, I would be very high. God, I can expect your blessing and favor. But when I wasn't doing good, then God, I can't expect your favor. And there was this emotional roller coaster of up and down with God. And you would write over that whole season of my life, you could just write the word frustration over it because that's what it was. I couldn't keep my own standards. I wasn't experiencing the fruit in my life that I had read about in others who were doing the same things that I was doing. No matter what I did, it never seemed to be enough. And people who were half as dedicated as I was were twice as blessed as me and I was tired. So here was my next mistake during that season of my Christian experience is that I began to put righteousness on credit. Do you know what that is? Do you know what it is when you put righteousness on credit? It's called hypocrisy. That's the one word uh, definition or, or, or word that, that is connected with that. And here's what that means. It means, well, this isn't the reality of my behavior. I'm not this person. I'm not this holy man who, who, who is always living in, in, in the spirit of of, of, of Oh, angels and, and prayer and, and Bible. I'm not that man. I want to be that man, but I'm not that man. But I can't let anybody else know that I'm not that man. And, and I can't let God know that I'm not that man. And so I'm going to pretend to be that man when I'm around everybody else. And I'm going to hope that that catches up with me, that it becomes true of me before anybody finds out that I'm faking it. That, that's what it means to put righteousness on credit. But all the time in my mind, I was running away from who I really was, which is not what I was pretending to be, this holy man of God, you know, this whole thing. I learned during that time that acting is hard work. It is not easy to put on masks and facades and pretend to be something that you're not. And the result is that I came to a point in my Christian experience where Christianity became a burden. It wasn't rest. You couldn't characterize my walk with Christ as rest by any stretch. It was a burden. I was constantly running from what I really was. And then it happened upon a time that I heard a message. And as I was sitting and listening to that message, the speaker opened with these words. He said, have you ever wished that there was two of someone else and none of you? And I said to myself, all the time, all the time. 
I wish there was two of someone else and, and, and none of someone else. And, and what he said following that is this. He said, if God wanted two of somebody else and none of you, then he would have made two of someone else and none of you. And what I realized at that time is that I was who I am, or I am who I am. And I was a little bit depressed by that because I realized, well, I'm, not, I'm just not that exciting. In reality, I'm, I'm a low energy, introverted, unoriginal, want to be a lot of things I'm not, self-centered Christian. That's what I am. And God spoke to my heart and he said, welcome. That's who I died for. That's who I loved. And that's who I'm going to change by the power of my Holy Spirit and make into who I want him to be. That's what I'm going to do within your life. It was then that I began to experience his rest in my life. It was then that the verses that I knew in my head became real in my heart. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. It's his work. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by regeneration and washing and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not us, it's him. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, which says, For when we were yet without strength, when we were at our very worst, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sees what we are right to the very core. And he decided that he was going to take upon himself the sins of your life in the condition that you were in, that you are in, and that you always will be in, that he was going to take that upon himself. And what he invites you and I into now is a rest, wherein we can come to him as we are. We can receive the free gift of his salvation, and we can fully expect with confidence that he's going to be finish in our lives the work that he started in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says that it is God who worketh in you to will, that means to want, and to do of his good pleasure. It's his work in our lives to sanctify us. We cannot hasten it. We can surrender and we can yield, but he's the one that makes us what we're to be. And what that means is that when we're saved, we are absolutely free from any expectation from God or from men, that we should be something that we are not. God knows what we are. That's rest. And there is a rest that remains for the people of God. And he that has entered into that rest has also then ceased from his own works. We'll close with verse 11. He says, verse 11, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. You say, well, isn't that the biggest paradox I've ever heard? We do that every week, by the way. We labor Monday through Friday to enter into rest 
on the weekend. You know, it's kind of how life works. We labor for 60 years so that we can rest for 20, hopefully, on the backside of our life, you know, and all. But he says here, let us labor to enter into that rest. In other words, do what it takes to get to that point. Well, how in the world do we do that? Well, first of all, he says at the end of the verse, he says, lest any of you fall after the same example of unbelief. The first labor in this thing is simply faith. It means that I'm going to take God at his word. Now you think about it for just a minute if you contrast the children of Israel with you and I or compare the children of Israel with you and I. They were in the wilderness, wandering, roller coasters, doing good, doing bad, tempted, tested, humbled, taught, refined, fires, all that. And God said, now go in and take the land. I've provided it for you. It's my promise to you. I'm giving it to you. And they were too fearful to go in because of the battles that they would have to fight there and the enemies that they would have to face. And they were content to dwell in the wilderness because they didn't trust God that he was able to completely do it. Now, how about you and I? Every Christian goes through a wilderness. We come out of Egypt, as it were. We come out of bondage in the world. And there is a season where you and I, like I did in the time when I was trying to figure out this whole concept of rest, we're in a wilderness. And what it takes to get into the promised land is that at some point we have to take God at his word. He said, the work is finished. To Telestai, it is done. Christ paid for it in his blood. The Holy Spirit is in you. He will give you victory over the battles in your flesh. The giants of the world and the flesh and the devil are no match for him that is in you because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. But at some point, you and I have to stand upon those promises and we need to stop trying to help God with our works and our effort and our works of righteousness. And to say, God, if I'm going to do anything in your name, let it be completely out of a response and out of gratitude for what you've done for me. Not to try to earn your favor or your blessing in some way. That's rest. And so faith is essential if we're going to enter into that rest, is that we have to stand upon God's word. The musicians can come as we close. But I'm reminded in all of this of uh, a story that I heard about a young man who was going through an initiation rite to join a fraternity at his college. And part of the hazing that this fraternity required this young man to go in is that he was blindfolded and he was brought in in the middle of the night out into a field where there was a well and he didn't know where he was and and he was disoriented and they said we're going to lower you down into a well and we're going to see how you hold up under pressure and so hold on to this rope and we'll lower you down and we'll see if you freak out when you're in the darkness and feeling claustrophobic and then we'll pull you back out again. And so they lowered this young man down, down into this well by this rope. And he was thinking, you know, I'm strong. I'm, I'm able to do this. I, I'm not going to give in to, to their pressure tactics and all. And so he goes down this well and he's holding on to this rope. And the guys up at the top, they bring him down to a certain point. Then they tie off the rope and then they all leave. And, and so the sound of their voices and their laughter fades off into the distance. And this young man is left alone, knowing that they're gone and just holding on to this rope. And he thinks, I got this. This is no big deal. And so he holds on to that rope. But a few minutes pass and he feels his muscles starting to wear out. And he begins to you know, shrink a little and pull himself back up. And, and he is sliding down the rope a little bit as he goes. And, 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 and as he gets 
more and more tired. He, he, he's now fully extended, and he comes to the very end of his rope. And he's holding on with everything that he's got, and he begins to panic. Come on, guys, I can't hold on anymore. And, and, and he knows if he lets go, that's it. He's, he's, he doesn't know how far down it is. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And guys, help, help, come back, come back. And then, and then when he can hold on no longer, his fingers give way, and he drops an inch and a half, which had been perfectly calculated and measured out by those that had dropped him down. And he lands on his feet, and he goes, you jerks, you know. And then he hears the laughter, you know, as they all come back. Oh, we got you, you know, this whole thing. There are so many Christians seeking to please God, seeking to work, seeking to strive, seeking to earn his favor or his blessing or his answer to their prayer or that he would just work in their life. And they're holding on with everything they've got. And there's no rest. Let go. Trust in him. He knows the plans that he thinks towards you. Thoughts for peace and not for evil. To give you an expected end. That doesn't mean it's always going to be easy and that there's not going to be trials. There was battles to fight in the promised land. But there was great blessing. And it was so worth it. You can trust the promises of God. And he calls us to stand on them. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the truth that it presents before us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his cross and his salvation. We're so unworthy, Lord, of what you provided in the blood. But tonight, Lord, we desire to make it our profession and our faith that we will stand upon what you said. And our hope tonight is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And your work within our lives is an assurance to us that you're going to complete it. And so, Father, I pray tonight for anyone here that maybe is on that roller coaster that needs to enter into your rest. For you, Jesus said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I pray for some tonight that have been holding onto that rope for far too long, wearing the mask of hypocrisy, running from the footsteps of who they really are, following close behind. And that tonight they would find themselves in the heart of Jesus, loved by God, accepted and blessed. And I pray if there's anyone here tonight who has heard the gospel but has yet to mix it with faith, still in darkness in the world, still in the bondage to their sins, that if tonight, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would call them out of that darkened state and if you would save them by the power of your gospel I pray Lord that you would move them to receive you and so we look to you tonight Lord as our savior as our father and our friend and we pray that your will would be done in our lives in all things so thank you Lord we put our trust in you and it's in Jesus name that we ask Amen, Amen. Let's all stand